You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating. I'm your host, Rachel Heinemann, licensed mental health counselor. Each week, we explore the deeper meaning of our relationship with food and our body. I interview experts in the field of eating disorders and psychoanalysis to bring you the answers about why you do the things you do and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. All right, let's get started. Welcome to Understanding Disordered Eating, Episode 5. Today, we sit down with Kimberly Meehan, who is an ANCC board-certified psychiatric nurse practitioner. She has a private practice in New York City and works with adults who experience anxiety, depression, ADHD, sleep issues, eating disorders, and OCD. Kim works with an integrative and holistic approach, offering lifestyle changes, meditation, mindfulness, and psychotherapy, in addition to medication management. Kim also coaches solopreneurs who are feeling stuck and also advises several mental health startups. Right now, Kim is working to launch a social social media page focusing on bringing more balance to your life in pursuing the life of your dreams. Definitely check her out on Instagram. She loves spending time by the beach with her Bernadoodle Bix and is currently busy training for the 2021 NYC Marathon. I'm really excited about this conversation because, I mean, as you know, the point of the podcast is mostly to get people thinking a little bit more about why they do what they do, especially as it pertains to eating disorder behaviors. Um, And obviously, if there's a neurological side, then we have to talk about that. So before we start, I would love to hear a little bit more about what your training is, especially because some people think about prescribing providers as psychiatrists and you're a psych NP. So what does that entail? And I know that your journey was kind of different. So like, what does yes. it look like? Yeah, my journey was definitely not direct. Um, I went to undergrad for neuroscience with a minor in psychology and leaving undergrad, I was more thinking along the lines of, you know, some form of a research track. And so I, uh, my first job was for a couple of years was working for clinical drug studies for Alzheimer's disease, which is so different from where I'm at now. Uh, But it really was what opened me to the idea of being a nurse practitioner and really taught me that I wanted to be client facing. And I got so much out of working with the clients in the, in the drug studies and just really learning more about the impact of not only a prescription, but also the impact of like how to care for somebody and how that can go just as far as a medication. And so I took uh, a leap of faith and literally found it was somebody I went to college with on Twitter had posted something about a nurse practitioner program for psychiatry. And I clicked the link and I was like, this sounds interesting. And I applied to it as the only program I applied to Boston College. And I got in. And at that time, I was interviewing for different PhD programs. And I just didn't do any of the interviews and, um, yeah, just kind of went with, went with what my gut told me. And it's been the most amazing choice I made and really was just jumping on a gut instinct about it. And so the track I did, because it was a second career choice, because my background was in something different, I did a fast track. And so I did it full time, no breaks in the summer, no breaks in the winter. And so I did my RN like one year. And then the nurse practitioner part was about a, a little over a year, year and a half. Oh, and wow. That's, that's not, really fast. Yeah. So it's not typical. Most, most programs for an NP. So let me backtrack a second. Most nurse practitioners have had to go to get their RN, which can take anywhere from two to four years, depending on if you do it in undergrad or postgrad. And then the nurse practitioner is typically three years on top of that, but that's part-time. So I did it full-time, which is why you get it to be down to a, a year and a half. And so it was just, you know, my head's down, focus. I didn't have a social life for that time, but I, I enjoyed it more because I'm, you know, the type of person who kind of just needs to be fully focused on something. So it was intense, but so it was a little, yeah, it was intense, but enjoyable and um, do you have to have any sort of experience before you jump into the NP education between RN and NP? So, yeah. So during that time I was doing clinical hours 
on top of schoolwork at the same time. And so typically in like the typical program, you might do your classes one year and then your training the next year. And so for the program I was in, we just did it all at the same time. And that's what made it exhausting because I was in a full four, you know, full 40 hours a week of doing clinical work in addition to all of the schoolwork. Oh my God. I, I, in order for, for psych NP, we needed maybe like 800 hours of clinical hours, which compared to, you know, LMHC or social work is actually far less, but I was, I, I think I ended up with maybe 1200 hours by the time I graduated. Overachiever, Kim. (laughs) (laughs) No, well, it was more out of my fear of like, let me maximize everything I can learn while I'm here. Yeah. And I was saying the 800 hours were specifically in prescribing. Okay. Yeah. So I was in a partial, I was in an adolescent partial program and I was treated as if I was an employee there. And so I ran groups. I did all of the intakes, all of the discharges, and I would spend time on the unit, spend time in the adult program as well. But most of my time was spent with adolescents and really learned one-on-one all of the roles of prescribing. But what I really liked about my experience in the partial program was that also exposed me to therapy. And so I was leading CBT groups and CBT groups. And I think if I had been in other settings, because some of my uh, classmates were in just typical outpatient, you know, practices or full-on inpatient units. And I, I really appreciated the partial setup because it exposed me to being able to do everything. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things I, I love about you and your practice is that it's not just, okay, here's some meds and come back to me. You yeah. have the therapeutic background. I mean, even just like the intuition of the compassion with the nursing, the the yeah. RN, the yeah. NP background, yeah. um, which kind of gives the entire picture as opposed to just like throwing pills at people, which exactly. unfortunately is some people's experience. Yeah, exactly. And so I've, I've, and I've learned that it was, uh, you know, I would say it was a bit green going into the career and um, once got into my first job, really saw it wasn't that where I was working was that way, but it was more just seeing clients coming to me and really just seeing that a lot of the times people were given meds and they didn't know why they were on them and they didn't know what they were supposed to be looking for. And so it's really opened my eyes and my heart to make it my mission that that's not the experience clients get with me. Yeah. I mean, so I guess my question here is for some people who might have some sort of hesitation or don't really understand medication, why is it important to consider medication as part of someone's treatment approach? I like to use the comparison of, you know, understanding the biology of why we feel things. And so if somebody is, you know, um, being treated for diabetes, there's a lifestyle component of exercise and of monitoring what you eat. But there's also a component of sometimes you might need insulin or sometimes you might need you know, another one of the medications. And even though mental health, eating disorders included or anxiety or depression, even though it's not as tangible as seeing a number of a blood sugar level, it still is a biological disorder or condition. And so with that, medication has a role in the same way that insulin does. It has a role in addition to therapy, in addition to lifestyle factors, but of really helping in a way that sometimes therapy alone can't. And so I like to paint the picture that, yeah, that there's really a biological underlying to what's going on and what someone might be experiencing and can really see the difference in at certain points when adding a medication in. Yeah. And I think we'll go into specifics of what you're talking about, the biology of some disorders and how the medication can help. But I think also what's important to highlight here is that it it basically never happens that someone comes through our door with an eating disorder and nothing else. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, part of what you do in training eating disorders is treating the comorbidity, uh, let's say there's a mood disorder or something. Um, so in that, in, in that sort of situation, we have to look at, um, how it can help with any sort of other diagnoses. Yeah. And in fact, there's over, I believe it's over 75% of clients with eating disorders have a comorbid mood disorder, whether that's anxiety or depression or OCD. Yeah. And so what we see, and we can get into this later or now, but the research 
uh, or there's not that much research or evidence necessarily to support. Well, actually, let me backtrack. <laughs> when treating someone with an eating disorder, sometimes we see that as their mood is getting better, that that also is in line with seeing their eating disorder improve. And so while there may not be an ideal medication to target somebody's relationship with food in the ways that we would hope to, if we're helping target their intrusive thoughts about food, then that end result can then help improve, you know, their, their relationship with food. Yeah. And I think with eating disorders, it's so complicated because it is a a complex diagnosis that we have to look at, you know, and this is something that we talked about in a previous uh, episode about the biopsychosocial, that there's so many different aspects that cause and maintain an eating disorder. So there's, yes, there's the biology piece of it, but then there's also, if someone is malnourished, then that affects the body and the brain. Um, And then, and then we get into this whole chicken or the egg sort of circle. Exactly. And that's where a lot of education comes in, at least in my role is educating a client. Like if they're coming to me and they're malnourished and, you know, they're having one meal a day, but they're so exhausted or they're so depressed or they don't have any energy to make their meals or to show up for work. Sure. It could be, you know, depression, but it's also looking at the full picture of, okay, if you're only nourishing yourself once a day at the end of the day, like that makes sense then that your body doesn't have the energy it needs to do just basic things like even showering or brushing your teeth. And so a lot of it comes to the education of like recognizing both might play a role, both the mood disorder, but also that if your body's not nourished in the right ways, we see that show up as mood symptoms as well. Yeah. And not any level of medication is going to help with that. You got to use food as, as your meds. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point of sometimes, you know, in working with clients with eating disorders, that food can be the medicine, but that's like a really tricky, really tricky line to cross. But, yes. um, <laughs> but especially for someone who might be med resistant, that's, you know, I guess where it kind of comes full circle then. Yeah. So kind of along the lines of the complexity of this, how do you actually assess for medication? It's not like you can just take a blood test and say, oh, you have this and this and this right. and right. therefore take this medication. So right. how do you, how do you do that? Yeah. If only it were that easy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it really comes down to, you know, it's really an art and a science with prescribing, you know, we could all do the research and look at what the, you know, uh, books tell us on what to prescribe, but it really, at least in my role, it comes down to who's sitting in front of me. What do, what are their concerns? What are their needs? And, you know, what are ways that they want to feel better and also how, how can they achievably get there. And so when considering when is the right time for a medication, a lot of it comes down to if they've tried a lot of other avenues beforehand or how severe it is, right? Like if it's impacting their functioning where they can't physically get to therapy or where they're not able to do self-care, that's where medication can help the process of the way where it is turned down the volume of some of the things that might interfere with their ability to take care of themselves otherwise. And so, you know, in a nutshell, the choice to start a medication is really severity, functionality, and, you know, the extent that the symptoms are impacting their lives. Yeah. And I love that you're saying that it's an art and a science, which is very difficult to assess, especially if you don't take each individual's needs into account and something that, you know, shameless plug, I think that every time that you do this, in my experience, has been so spot on because you take the time to actually understand this person who's sitting in front of you as a whole, their background, their past, their relationships, and then you can kind of put the medication in that fits their lifestyle. Yeah, exactly. Beautifully said. <laughs> and but and that's where sometimes it's also a journey, right? And there's a lot of frustration. I think that's a lot of the stigma about medications is clients will say, I've tried so many, or, you know, um, I don't want to be, you know, the guinea pig for it. And so that's a big education part of while we might need to try one or two or more medications to find the right fit. It's also because we want to find the right fit and, um, how important it is that, you know, whatever you're, you're taking that it's tolerable and that it's not impacting your life more than what we were initially treating. And so that's really where it's a continual art of, not just starting a med and saying, okay, you know, that's, that's, that's getting better. It's really continuing to assess, like, 
is this meeting our goal? Is this helping you, you know, be the person that you want to be? Right. And that's finding the right medication or finding the right combination of medications and then finding the right dosage, which is all a pretty uh, difficult task. Yeah. 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 And I give all of my clients so much credit and I always thank them for their patience in the journey because it's, yeah, it takes a lot of time and patience to really just um, for, for us to assess like what effect it's having and to, to find the right fit. Yeah. This might be too much of a quick fix sort of answer, but I've heard, and I don't know if you use this or if you know anything about it, but I've heard of genetic testing and people kind of try to rule out certain medications for severe side effects that might not agree with if the medication might not agree for a specific person. Am I talking about something legitimate? Yes, you are. And I love that you brought it up. It is something that I'm seeing emerge in the field more in the last five years. And I, I love to see it taking a place. It's still definitely in the earlier stages from what I, you know, from my experience with it, but I encourage it for my clients if they can afford it. I would say that's the biggest limiting factor right now is, is cost. And a lot of the companies are trying to make it more affordable or trying to take insurance, but what the genetic testing gives us at this point, it's not, it's not that quick fix, right? Like it can't tell us, okay, this is the best medication. This is what, you know, this is what will avoid side effects, but it does give us some helpful context, especially if someone's had multiple trials of medications, it might tell us why they're, why those medications haven't responded in that if their serotonin receptors have what we, you know, not to get too, too into the medical jargon, but if they have a genetic polymorphism, which is really just meaning it's not functioning as expected. And it, because of that, we might then expect that SSRIs are going to have more side effects for this person, or we might expect to try a different approach than maybe what would be first, you know, what comes to mind first, if the genetic profile shows something different. So at this point, it's not the quick fix, but it does give us a lot of helpful information to why someone may or may not have had a certain experience with the medication. Yeah. So what type of medications are there? Like what sort of classes of drugs do you normally use? Right. So for treating somebody with an eating disorder, it's, it's, it's tricky because there's not much research. There's not, there's only two FDA approved medications. And so a lot of it is based on treating either their comorbid symptoms of anxiety or depression, or what we might call off-label prescribing, which is very common. It, It basically just means doing what we see work clinically, but there may not be an FDA approval for it. And so as a whole, um, a lot of times we use SSRIs, so medications like Prozac or Zoloft. And more recently, there's been more use of second-generation antipsychotics, which might sound a little bit off because we're not treating somebody with psychosis, but the way that they work and the symptoms that they target and sometimes even the side effect profiles can be beneficial for clients with eating disorders. And so it's really in an exploratory phase, but um, yeah, the SSRIs, second generation antipsychotics, and for binge eating disorder, a medication called Vyvanse is approved. And yeah, but that's what really makes it tricky is that for each, you know, for all the components that go into an eating disorder, there's just varying levels of evidence for what's supportive based on which diagnosis. Yeah. What kind of drug is Vyvanse? Sorry about that. Yeah. So Vyvanse is actually used to treat ADHD. It's a stimulant medication and it's yeah, very interesting to me that it has the approval for binge eating disorder. And, but the more that I've learned about it and the more that I've used it in clients, I've really seen its efficacy in multi-dimensions. So, you know, I think one of the bigger driving factors is that it can reduce appetite for so for somebody who has binge eating disorder it allows them to maybe be more in, in tune with what their hunger cues are saying and to regulate their response to food or their impulse to food but there's been a lot of research more recently to show that there's an overlap between ADHD and binge eating disorder, specifically with impulsivity and attention to certain things. And so that's what I find interesting is um, yeah. that it improved coincided, like 
yeah, coincidingly a lot. <laughs> wow, that's really interesting. This is something that a little bit not controversial, but I, I try to stay away from this, especially if someone's asking for it specifically, but what's, what's your take on benzos, um, like anti-anxiety? Yeah, it's, it's definitely a controversial subject in terms of treating clients with eating disorders. There's no research to support its use in recovery. And, you know, the only time that maybe sometimes it's used is to help reduce anxiety around mealtimes. If somebody is very malnourished and having difficulty with food intake, but even with that, um, I think more recently, what we're seeing is really trying to use programs like meal support or coping, you know, anxiety coping skills around those meals rather than a benzo, just because the way a benzo works is it's very much can be a quick fix where it works quickly and it can certainly reduce the anxiety before a meal, but it also isn't necessarily treating the cause. Um, my, my other concerns with benzos are that they are habit forming and so they can quickly become dependent and it can be a very long journey to have somebody come off of a benzo. And so, you know, maybe 20, 30 years ago, they were more frequently used, but now we see SSRIs being used to treat anxiety in a way that's preventative and in a way that's not habit forming versus the benzos, which are used more in the moment rather than preventatively. And so that's what leads to them, you know, becoming so addictive. Right. And also, I, I don't know much about this, but I'm sure the half-life is much shorter and, and so- exactly. Right. Biologically, so, they become more addicted or something like exactly. that. Exactly. Yep. That's exactly it. So the half-life of a, of a benzo is a couple hours. You feel the effects right away wow. and it wears off within a few hours versus an SSRI, it'll take a month for it to work. So mm-hmm. there's not that immediate response to it. But again, if we're seeing that an SSRI is preventative of the anxiety in the first place, then that would reduce the need for the benzo. So sometimes, depending on the client, sometimes there'll be a benzo prescribed until the SSRI is working. But for the most part, you know, uh, the field is really leaning away from benzos just because mm-hmm. of, you know, yeah, the habit forming nature of them. And also because it doesn't produce long-term change in the behavior, because as soon as we take away from the benzo at mealtime, the client then doesn't have the coping skills for how to, you know, how to deal with the anxiety about food in that moment. Yeah. Uh, just for some context for some people who don't necessarily know what an antipsychotic or a benzo is, a benzo is like Xanax or Clonopin. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yep. Yep. So okay. benzos are um, Xanax, Clonopin, Ativan, and the antipsychotics that I'm talking about specifically here are Zyprexa, Seroquel, or Abilify. Yeah. <laughs> so something that uh, I've seen come up with both of these is the sleep issue that they can both technically target. If someone comes to you with sleep issues, because very often I see this all connected, especially with people struggling with eating disorders, if they're struggling with their sleep, what, what would you do? Right. First and foremost is really sleep hygiene. So from a non-prescriptive standpoint, it's educating them on, you know, all of the turn your phone off and, you know, be soothing before bed. But if we're talking about medications, I try and take an approach of least risk you know, starting with the least risky medication. So something like trazodone or hydroxazine, which are not habit forming. Um, and then kind of working our way towards things that, you know, depending on if those are effective or not, the antipsychotics do have a dual purpose. So something like Seroquel is really helpful for sleep. So if somebody has another reason that, you know, another symptom that might benefit from Seroquel, then that might be a good choice because, you know, we can target multiple things with one medication. So that's, especially with clients with eating disorders or somebody who might have, you know, depression that hasn't responded well to other medications. That's where something like that might make sense. Yeah. Because of the name, like you said, it sounds kind of scary. Are these more hardcore drugs that if someone is just struggling with sleep, that maybe not the best idea. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So something like Seroquel or, you know, the second generation antipsychotics, that's Seroquel, Abilify, Zyprexa, those have a lot more side effects. And so that's where it comes to be the art of prescribing is really weighing the pros and cons of, you know, the severity of what we're treating as well as like what potential risks are, are quote unquote worth it. Because, you know, the antipsychotics come with a lot of stronger side effects with risk of, you know, increasing your blood sugar, risk of high cholesterol, 
they, depending on the medication, can sometimes be taxing on the heart. They can increase your appetite and, and cause metabolic effects. And so there's a lot more things to consider for something like Seroquel over, you know, something that is not in that class. So like when we're talking about sleep meds, like trazodone, it's, it's much more minimal in side effects comparatively. And so that's where it really becomes the art of weighing, okay, if somebody has multiple symptoms that could benefit from Seroquel, maybe it's worthwhile and can educate the client on what the risks are. But if it's, you know, sleep and their other symptoms, if the sleep is the concern and their other symptoms are, are well-managed, that's where something a little bit less intense might make sense. Yeah. Um, so getting into like a little bit more of the mechanism of each of the class of drugs, I'm so curious to know if this is, if you're able to describe it to somebody who has no understanding of this, um, or the jargon, what is the neurobiology or the mechanism of these meds? Yeah, that's a great question. And we're still learning a lot about it, um, which is just so interesting to follow along on what's what changes year to year or every couple of years about it. So the primary medications that I see used in treating eating disorders, which are SSRIs, things like Prozac, Zoloft, Lexapro, those work on the um, neurotransmitter serotonin. So basically what they're doing is prolonging the effect of the, the serotonin that your body already has. And so they're doing that by, if we think of that serotonin is active when it's in the cell, so by blocking uh, the receptors to recycle it, it makes that serotonin last longer in your in your in your cell. So it um, increases the amount of serotonin, which then can help with mood. It can help with reducing um, anxiety and reducing intrusive thoughts. And so what's so just a clarification is, question, you're saying yeah. that it doesn't produce more serotonin. It keeps it in the place that we can actually use it as opposed to just hanging yeah. out in places where we can't. Yeah, basically. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. And so, and that's a big misconception that I have, uh, that I hear a lot is clients are nervous about like, well, what's it going to do to my brain? And is it going to change my brain? And, you know, I promise them it does not change your personality. If anything, it makes you feel more like yourself. And because of that, it's not, not adding serotonin to your brain. It's just using the serotonin that you have in a more efficient way, perhaps. And, and because of that, that's, that's, yeah, that's where we can see the results. Yeah. What about, um, just cause we were talking about, um, the second generation antipsychotic yeah, and, yeah. and benzos. Yeah. So those work those. very, yeah. So the second generation antipsychotics work very differently. They block dopamine receptors, which again, in a similar way of, of SSRIs blocking serotonin receptors, this blocks dopamine, which increases the dopamine that's available to be used. So we see that specifically for like the reward and the pleasure pathway. We see that in regards to motivation, emotional response, um, interest in things. But because of that, that's also where we see a lot of the side effects of, of second generation antipsychotics because where they where dopamine lives in the, in the brain, so to say elsewhere, that also then impacts those other parts of the body. And so the the second generation antipsychotics are have evolved um, to really minimize side effects comparatively to previous medications, but they still, as I said earlier, they still have um, much more things that we need to think about and consider. And yeah, then, so a couple of questions about just before you move on, in terms of the difference between maybe this is uh, too naive of a question. What's the difference between serotonin and dopamine? Because they both sound like uh, related yeah. to uh, feeling good. Yes. <laughs> yep. That's a very good question. So serotonin, and they are connected in some way, you know, along down the line of the chemical pathway, but serotonin is, if we think of the molecule for mood, so for, you know, feeling good for, you know, what we see when somebody, you know, when somebody doesn't have enough serotonin, that's where we see anxiety or we see depression. So it's very much linked to mood symptoms. For dopamine, that's more, much more linked to I would say maybe to behavior. So seeing it in impulsivity, seeing dopamine connected to attention and focus, to motivation. And, and so they, they work in very different ways, um, but maybe target end up targeting the same symptoms in the end. Yeah. I mean, dopamine, we very often hear in, in connection with addiction, 
Obviously, everybody needs a certain level of dopamine, but is there any connection here with addiction? I I don't necessarily believe in food addiction, but like, is that a thing? Am am I wrong about that? Right. No. Well, yeah, my, it's interesting. and, And it's, again, another misperception is, oh, I've got a dopamine issue. And it's really just like blindly said and and said to cover all, all, all components, but where we see differences in the dopamine, say we're talking about here with eating disorders or for, you know, even ADHD is that their dopamine in different parts of the brain has different roles. So in one part of the brain, maybe an increase of dopamine is where we might see addiction. And in another part of the brain, that an increase in dopamine is maybe where we see, you know, changes to, to motivation. And so in terms of addiction, it's, it's, still the dopamine that we're talking about here, but it's most likely in a very different part of the brain than the um, components that are related to eating disorders. Oh, wow. And then just kind of circle back to some of the neurobiology, especially uh, what I, my question is about benzos, especially why you don't necessarily use them. What is, what is some of the biology behind it? Yep. So what, benzodiazepines, so they said they work very, very quickly in the brain and how they're working is they're binding at the GABA receptors and GABA is another neurotransmitter, just like dopamine or serotonin, but maybe doesn't get as much, doesn't get as much, um, airtime, but GABA is, is what we call an inhibitory neurotransmitter. And the way I describe it is when it's activated, it just you know, kind of mutes or numbs everything kind of going on in, in where their receptors are. And so, uh, benzodiazepines work to increase, um, GABA very, very quickly again in, you know, 15 to 30 minutes. And so because of that, we just see that very rapid onset of a calming effect, um, in the brain. And so again, very different system than the serotonin and dopamine, which really just shows how comprehensive and complicated our brains are in that if you're having mood symptoms, it's not just serotonin, it's not just dopamine, it's all of these different characters and are, you know, kind of playing together. Yeah. Um, and just because we're talking about the the half-life, where does the second generation second generation antipsychotic fall into in terms of uh half-life for lack of a better way to put it? Yep. So um, they all differ in that, you know, some will range from, you know, a few hours to several days. And so it really depends on that. That's another factor that we think about um, when prescribing is really how long it makes sense for that medication to be in the body. So something like, um, you know, Abilify is going to, it can last anywhere from 70 to 140 hours. And so that's a few days. So if somebody's having side effects, then that's hard because they might be experiencing that for a few days. And the same for SSRIs, those half, the half-life of most SSRIs is roughly 30, 30 30-ish hours. The only exception is Prizac, which Prozac is the only FDA approved medication for eating disorders for bulimia and Prozac's half-life for some of its metabolites is up to, you know, seven to 14 days. And so that's a, that is something we need to consider because if somebody has um, a bad response to a medication, if they're on Prozac, they're still going to be in their body for a week, even after they stop taking it. Um, And so it's just, it's an important thing to consider both with like starting somebody on a medication, but also taking them off of it. And so going back, making this full circle, going back to benzodiazepines, knowing that their half-life is, you know, three to five hours that really speaks to how quickly they work compared to these other classes of medications. Yeah. Um, so pivoting a little bit away from the actual medications and more to eating disorders themselves, is there a way to understand eating disorders on a neurological or a biological level? And if there is, what is that? Yeah. So it's difficult because the research that we have right now to know kind of what the brains of somebody with an eating disorder look like, it's hard to tell what's in result of the eating disorder versus what's the cause of it. And because Mm -hmm. we're not getting brain scans or we don't have the research at this point of brain scans of somebody before an eating disorder, we really only know, or before they have an eating disorder, we only, we really only know 
what their brains look like as they have it. And so we don't, it's, it goes back to the chicken or the egg. Like we don't know if the, what we're seeing in the brain is necessarily the cause or the result of an eating disorder, but there are notable differences. And the way that we see those differences are both um, in the structural components of the brain, but also even in the neurochemical parts. So if you want, I can dive into how we, how we look at those. Oh things. yes, please. Let's nerd <laughs> out for a second. <laughs> yeah. I love this. It brings me back to my days of neuroscience and um, not every day I get to explain all of this to patients. So I love it. So if we're looking at the structural components of the brain, that's where an MRI or even an fMRI might make sense. And so what those do is it can Wait, one show second. what's the difference between an MRI and an fMRI? Yeah. So an MRI is, you know, you go into the lab machine, it's clinking and it yeah. really, it, it can show <laughs> the you the one in the movies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it can show you where, um, it, it shows you the, um, the gray matter of the brain. And so with that, you can see all the different, the, the frontal lobe, the occipital lobe. Um, but you can't see what's going on. You can just basically see the structures of the brain. It's kind of like an x-ray, but for mm-hmm. not for bones. What an fMRI does is it allows you, and it's so fascinating, it allows you to see how the different parts of the brain communicate to each other and like what's activated when. So what, you know, in using a client with eating disorders, what they might do is what parts of the brain light up when, you know, they're at mealtime versus when they're restricting or what parts of the brain light up when somebody's going, you know, just about to have a binge episode or after a binge episode. And so that's where it's fascinating to really understand that there is a biologic component and that the brain, you know, has a role in it. Where in the brain that is, that's where it's still very new research. You know, there's definitely support for changes to and I don't know how much you want to get have me go into the jargon of it, but like one key player that we found is the insula, which is connected to sensory info about food. And so somebody with an eating disorder is going to have an altered response in the fMRI in their insula, which makes sense when we think of what an eating disorder is. Um, And other components are uh, the nucleus of humans, which is the main source of where dopamine lives and how that then connects to other parts of the brain, such as the orbital frontal cortex and the amygdala. And that's where we really see the connection with like the reward and the value of food. And so we can see that it changes the perceived importance of, of food once you have a stimulus. And so that's still where we're all, we're, we still have a lot more to learn about it, but it's very reassuring that, or just interesting to know that, that the different parts of the brain, like what their roles are, and then how we see that impacting behavior in, in real life. Yeah. So maybe can help understand why somebody might gravitate toward binge eating as opposed to restriction, because maybe certain parts of their brain are lighting up, they're getting more, I guess, quote, pleasure from one of these behaviors that somebody else wouldn't necessarily get. Exactly. Yep. That's exactly it. And so that's where we still don't know if that gravitation towards these behaviors is in result of their brain being this way, or if that happens, like if over time it's reinforced and then we see their brain changing, but yeah, that's exactly it. Over time we do see, and this is what's interesting is that we'll see, you know, for, for somebody say with anorexia, we'll see that there's a lower brain volume, less thickness in their brains, which, you know, cognitively we'll see that impacting in terms of, you know, harder to remember things and lower energy. But what's interesting is when they are weight restored, we'll see their brain be back at a normal size. And so it's encouraging that these changes we see in the brain, maybe not all of them, but that they're not permanent necessarily. And so um, if somebody's experiencing some of these symptoms when they're malnourished, that there's really hope that their brain will also change and heal um, as they're restoring weight. Yeah. And also the reason why we say for somebody who is malnourished, that a you know, significant part of therapy isn't possible to get to until their weight restored because yeah. of this reason, cognitively, they're not really able to think properly. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. And that's a good reminder too. And talking about medications is that, you know, especially somebody malnourished with anorexia, that they 
their brains aren't functioning at their fullest capacity. And so their decision-making gets impacted and, you know, their judgment of value gets impacted. And so it really falls into the, you know, provider, whether it's myself as a prescriber or you as a therapist, like the role of education of, um, of just encouraging why the importance of, of nourishing your body. Yeah. So for somebody who is considering medication, I know you've said that, you know, it's, there aren't too many medications that are approved for eating disorders. How effective are the medications? So it depends on what we're treating. And I think this is where we need to scope out a little bit too and consider like, what is our goal of what we're treating, right? Like, what are we looking at for efficacy? And for somebody with an eating disorder, at least in my role, I'm looking at the actual eating disorder, right? So like, is their behavior use reduced? Are they restoring weight? You know, how is their perception and relationship with food changing? But I'm also looking at their mood symptoms of anxiety and depression, because that's such a big overlap. So for efficacy with medication, for somebody with anorexia, there's very medication is, does not play a prominent role in treatment. And the reason for that is when your body is malnourished, it really can't use the medication effectively, meaning that we see a limited effect on its serotonin response. We see limited absorption of the medication. And so while medication might play a role in comorbid symptoms for anorexia, um, there are no FDA approved medications. And so the efficacy is much more limited than somebody with bulimia or binge eating. Um, for bulimia and binge eating disorder, the efficacy is, is you know, pretty marked with, we see, um, well, in, in combination with medication and therapy, we can see up to a 70% response with abstinence or reduced behaviors. And so that's where it's very hopeful, where adding the medication in can, um, yeah, can really change the progress that somebody might be making over therapy alone. Yeah. And obviously they have to take their medication every day. They have to take their medication. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where a lot of the education comes in. And, you know, I see that there's a lot of fear around it before starting it, but in the fear about just the stigma of it or the fear of remembering to take it or the side effects. But um, as somebody sees that the medication is helping them, it becomes less of a concern and becomes more of a, oh, wait, like I remember feeling this, you know, I'm feeling more like myself. I'm feeling, I'm seeing the progress that I'm able to make in therapy. And that's where I think it then is more, you know, helping with compliance. Yeah. I wanted to ask you a few questions that I get frequently. I'm sure you get too, but first of all, I think you alluded to this earlier. How, how long do the meds take to, to actually work? Yep. So for the SSRIs, which is primarily what, what we're talking about in treating clients with eating disorders, they will take up to six to eight weeks to work. And that's a long time for somebody who's not feeling well. And so a lot of it is talking through of just, you know, having patients and instilling hope that even though it sounds like a long time, that they will be feeling better soon. Yeah. But also something like that says that, oh, I'm feeling better. I started taking it three days ago. Well, right. Yeah, maybe not. <laughs> maybe not. Right. And I'll let them ride out that hope. But I also then will say, you know, that positive feeling may not may not last. Let's really give it more time um, for something like the um, second generation antipsychotics, like, you know, the Seracol, the Abilify, those we do see working more quickly for mood and also for um, if, if, yeah, for mood in that um, they might take less than a week to work. And so that's sometimes another consideration is depending on how severe someone's symptoms are, maybe using the second generation antipsychotic, you know, in conjunction with an SSRI, because we know we'll be able to see it work quicker. But that really, it's, I wouldn't say that that's common practice. It's more just depending on severity. Yeah. And on average, obviously this is different for everyone, but how long do people usually stay on the medications? The recommendations are to stay on them for at least nine to 12 months. And the reasons for that are that research has shown that coming off of them sooner, there's a greater chance of relapse. There's a greater chance of um, symptoms returning. And so um, I tend to see, I, 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 again, 
most clients will say, oh, I want to stay on it as, as little time as possible. But as we're seeing them effective, um, I'll bring up the conversation at the nine to 12 month mark of, you know, how are you feeling about being on this? And what are your thoughts of staying on this? And a lot of times clients want to stay on them longer because they've noticed the difference because they're now, you know, appreciative of the role it plays. So I would say on average, with my clients maybe staying on them like two to three years, but I also have clients who have been on them for 20, 30 years. Um, and so it really oh, wow. depends on, yeah, it really depends on like how the client is functioning and if they're having side effects. Yeah. I don't know if you have any experience with this, but especially if somebody is on this for long-term and, you know, for a woman who wants to get pregnant, are there any sort of issues with some of these medications for pregnancy? It depends on the on the medication and it depends on the client. So I come from the place of healthy mom, healthy baby. And so we really weigh the pros and cons of, of staying on the medication. For the most part, most SSRIs except Paxil um, are relatively uh are relatively safe to stay on during pregnancy. Of course, that's a decision you need to talk about with your with your provider. And it's not something we take lightly. It's, you know, it's something I spend multiple sessions talking about with each client if they are going to decide to stay on it. Um, but, you know, I think what we've seen is that if somebody's mental health, if a pregnant woman's mental health is declining or their eating disorder is showing up again during pregnancy, that that could be more harmful to the baby than any risk from the medication. And so there's a lot more support for staying on the medication if the medication is helping and if the, if the client is stable during pregnancy, um, just because of wanting to keep the mother's mental health a priority. Yeah. Another thing that I've heard is that there's a specific medication that you're supposed to stay away from if somebody is struggling with bulimia. Is that, is that a thing? Is that true? What it's a that? thing. It's a thing. Yeah. So Wellbutrin is, um, it works as an antidepressant. It's not an SSRI. It works on norepinephrine and dopamine, but and it can be effective for treating depression, but for somebody with bulimia and even anorexia, we want to stay away from it because it can lower your seizure threshold. So what that means is basically, even if somebody doesn't have an eating disorder, if they have a history of seizures, well, is not a good fit for them because it makes them more likely to have a seizure. For somebody who is purging or is you know actively restricting, that's going to change the chemical imbalance in your body, which then will make it more likely, you know, it's going to lower your seizure threshold. So adding Wellbutrin on top of already having sodium and potassium imbalances will make it more likely for somebody to have a seizure. So um, it's definitely a one to stay away from if somebody's purging. Yeah, definitely. Something else that that's pretty much something we talk about in terms of the side effects is the weight gain. And it's such a tricky topic with someone with an eating disorder, because especially on our side of the room, for somebody who's severely malnourished, it's almost a welcome thing. We would love for them to gain weight so that they can restore their functioning. But obviously for them, it's absolutely terrifying. And so it's so dicey. What do you, what do you do with this? Yeah, I would say that's probably the hardest, the hardest conversations to be having and the hardest Again, I, I keep talking about weighing the pros and cons, but that's really what it comes down to in having these conversations with clients. And it is a reality. It's the number one concern I have in all clients, whether they have an eating disorder or not, but specifically those who are already conscientious about their weight and, and are not in the phase of recovery of wanting to restore. And I like to come from the place of compassion and empathy and understanding, you know, really saying, look, like I know that this might be hard and I can't promise what's going to happen um, or not happen. But I really encourage them that if at any point they're uncomfortable with any changes they see because of being on this medication, that we can have a conversation of what that means. And I think just coming from a place of understanding helps the client become more comfortable with it. What we end up seeing once they're on the medication, some medications are more likely to cause weight gain. Others, maybe we see it, maybe we don't. But what I find is that a lot of times, even if we're seeing those changes to weight once they're on the medication, because they're improving their relationship with food in their body, sometimes they're a little bit more accepting of it than what they thought before starting the medication. Oh, interesting. But, yeah, but to answer your question about weight gain, um, if 
if that's helpful <laughs> for, for the specifics. In terms of the SSRIs, which are Prozac, you know, Zoloft, Lexapro, they, I would say like there's an equal chance of weight gain, weight loss, or no change in weight with, with those medications. And it really depends on the person. And that's not something that we can know about ahead of time. And so I educate that there might be a change in their weight, but it's not something that, that we can predict. The second generation antipsychotics are more inclined to cause weight gain. And so that's obviously a much more in-depth conversation that we need to have with patients about it. Yeah, this is so helpful. I mean, we can go on for days and days and days, <laughs> yeah. but just in the interest of time, um, the last thing I wanted to ask you is there's so many uh, interesting things that we hear about medications. People have these thoughts about them. And I'm just curious, like what are the funniest or the craziest ones? That you've yeah. Heard? <laughs> oh yeah. I've heard them all. Um, but I would say the most common one and the most real one is that people come in thinking like, Oh, it's a happy pill or I'll, I'll be cured. I'll, you know, I'll be able to, you know, do all of these things. And, you know, it's, it's a very grounding conversation that, okay, it's not going to be the quick fix. It can help you feel more functional. It can help you get back on your feet and turn down the volume of some of the symptoms you might be experiencing, but that it's not going to be that, you know, I tell them, I'm like, I don't expect you to be running down the streets, jumping up and down this joy because of this medication, I say, but it might help you start your day a little easier or whatever has been impacting them. And really seeing that while they're not happy pills, they are medications that can um, help you use your other tools of life more effectively and see more benefit. So for something like therapy, for something like even just general coping skills, that um, you might see more benefit from those in results of the medication. Not because of it, it's not a cause of it, but just because you're feeling better already. Um, so yeah, I think that's a big misconception with that. Um, there's the mis, you know, the notion that like they're a quick fix, which also they're not because you still have to do the work even with being on a medication. Yeah. Um, well, this was really informative and I, I really appreciate your taking the time. Before we wrap up, can you just share with our listeners where they can find you? Oh, thank you. Yeah, this is so fun. My first podcast, but um, you can find me on Instagram. My handle is Kim Meehan underscore MP. And um, with that, you can get a link to my website and find more about, about my practice. I'm a, um, yeah. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much, Rochelle. This is so fun. Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. If you enjoyed today's episode and you know someone who may as well, please share it. Not only does it help us reach more people, it really makes my day to know that this show is making a difference. All right. Talk next time.